Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning, Kesset. Wow, thank you. <laughs> My name is Kelly, and it's such a privilege to be able to, uh, to be here and speak with you this morning. Of course, my heart uh, and prayers go out with Danny and Dave and their family. Uh, it's amazing how God works, though. Uh, before the series started, Danny and I had talked, and he'd asked me for this week to teach this week. And so I think God just, you know, it's just reassuring how he has it all together, you know, and everything is in his hands. And so we pray for them, but we also know that God's uh, with us here in this. Um, what a powerful series, Untethered. And we've been working through this series together. Um, I say that because my family, um, we've been excited, each part of it, but it's a very unnerving series. Is that safe to say? I mean, there's just, is anybody else like struggling with the steps through this? Um, there's just so much where I feel like uh, I'm being challenged to consider outside my little safety zone, my box. And my wife and I, um, each week, we're excited about what God has next. And and one of the things we did at the very beginning of the series is we decided to step into wherever God leads. And I think that's, that's important for all of us because we either dig in, right, and stay put and, and refuse to, to learn more and go where God's leading, or we step in and say, God, um, this is a wild ride, but you're in charge, and I'm going to trust you. And I think that's so powerful for all of us. Um, I, I'm just so privileged to be a part of a church like this where they're willing to keep pushing where God's leading. And I think it's so awesome to be a part of a, a church where a pastor like Danny is so willing to lead us into that. Because I can tell you as a pastor for years that that is not an easy thing to do. And there's, there, it's, it's, it can be a, a terrifying at times to take people out of their comfort zone. Uh, and, and yet that's where God works. Um, one of my favorite verses that I, I want to throw out there this morning, and you can kind of hold on to it, because that's what I do in times like this, is in 2 Peter's Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and uh, it's a powerful scripture because, to me, this is the key um, that gives us the safety to, to go outside of our comfort zone and, and to be untethered, if you will. It's, it's, it says, uh, by God's divine power, he has given us everything we need to live a godly life. <laughs> by his, God's divine power, he has given us, all of us, everything we need to live a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. God isn't going to leave you out there when you come to untethered and the idea of letting loose and, and floating in space and worried you're going to lose uh, your bearings, where you're at in your faith and, and where God's leading you. Um, he has given you the power to get where you're at, and he has so much for us as we step into this that God is going to lead us through it uh, individually and as a church is what I think is so beautiful about it. Um, so when we get to these unnerving moments or untethered instances from how we view the Bible or prayer or church, as Chris talked about last week, or how we live out our faith, we know we're not alone, and we know that God is going to see us through it. The second week of this series, we were meeting at the uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventist building that we use occasionally, and um, for me, I heard Danny teach uh, that week perhaps the most passionate talk um, in the little over a year that we've been at Kesed. And I thought it was, it was just so powerful. And maybe it was just because it was speaking to me. Um, but I think for all of us, he, he really challenged us uh, to consider a few things. 
um, and I want to quote a couple things that he said there that, that kind of led us to where we're at today in this talk. Um, he said, I want to fill this church with seeking atheists, with seeking spiritualists, people who want to know who this Jesus is, and the only way they're going to, we're going to reach them is through you. That's why it hit me so hard. And I don't know if you've been wrestling with that or considering that since then. Hopefully we all have, or hopefully we all will. He said, I want to reach hurt people, tangled people, wretched people. And then he went on to say, when we move to uptown Vancouver, our church is going to be turned upside down, and the people we'll be reaching will only give us one chance. I think that is so profound, and I think so because um, as a pastor, I've gone through uh, three different times of doing a, a build-out into a new location and, and, and kind of starting a church in a new community, and when you go into a community like this, it's an awesome first-time experience because people there are, uh, especially now, they've been able to wait and keep seeing, like, when is this church coming? Are they ever coming, right? And it builds some suspense, and people are like, I can't wait to, to see what it's like. And, and as Danny said, we get one chance. There's going to be people that come there that have never been to church, or they, they, they've given up on church, and maybe they thought they would never go back, but they're going to come there, and, and how we connect with them will make the difference as to whether they ever come back again. And as Danny said, it's going to be through us that makes that whole difference. Um, three questions he asked. He said, one... Who have you disqualified from attending? That was his, his uh, questions to us at the end of that message. And he confessed himself. He said, I, I know there's people that I've done that to, and, and so who have we done that to in our life? Two, who do you refuse to sit with at the table? And three, what are you going to do about it? And so that challenge has been kind of percolating in my, my heart. And interesting, right after the service was over, my mother-in-law attends with us, and she was pretty excited about what he had to say, and, and, and she she looked up at me and she said, Kelly, so um, how far do I go with this? <laughs> she said, what are the boundaries of how far I let God take this in my life? And uh, I thought, well, that's, that's a good question, isn't it? How far do we go with this? Uh, the whole idea of reaching out to people outside of our comfort zone or in what we're used to. And, and um, so afterwards, I, I was going up to tell Danny how much I personally connected with his talk that day. And uh, I mentioned what my mother-in-law had said. And he goes, oh, that's perfect. Why don't you teach on that when you teach? I'm like, thanks. <laughs> I was hoping you could do that next week and I wouldn't have to touch this. But um, so here, let's dive into it. Boundaries. How far do we go with this? And maybe my subtitle would be where faith meets love. Where faith meets love. Um, hopefully where our faith, all, all of ours, can meet love. Um, Today, I want to start with a quote of the day, and then we'll kind of work through not only this quote, but what Jesus taught and, and, and experiences in this same matter. The quote is from an author and theologian, Barbara Brown Taylor, and this is what she said. She said, the only clear line I draw these days is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. Amen. Yeah, right? Oh, wow, that's cool. Some of you are clapping, others are like, whoa, <laughs> i got to process that. And that's okay. I think this is a lot to process. This is a very provocative quote. But I want to challenge us to absorb the power of this quote as we look together at some scriptures this morning and the life of Christ um, in, in, in his life, in, in his ministry. And I think that when we look to this uh, and how Jesus used it, 
it's going to help us all to untether from some maybe preconceptions we have that separate us from really learning to love all the people that God has for us. And I think that some of us have just kind of dug in to where we're at, and we've not opened up or stepped in to where God wants us to go. And I think when we do that, it's a beautiful picture of what God intends for his church and for us specifically or individually. I think that our culture today, is it safe to say, has maybe never been more um, divided in so many areas. It's, it's, it's shaken politically, religiously, racially, socioeconomically. It used to be, you know, you'd get together and maybe a family get together and you'd see Cousin Ed or Uncle Ed and, and you knew it was going to be a debate because maybe he was on one side of the political aisle and you were on another and you'd have those great discussions about ribbing each other about thoughts and ideas. Or we could talk about religion or different things and it was a safe chance that usually when you talked with somebody else that you disagreed with, you'd walk away and you both were a little smarter for it. Not that you were convinced to change, nor were they. But today it doesn't feel like it's that way, is it? It feels like you're either on one side of a subject or another, and we, we tend to now avoid talking at all because of the fear that it's going to blow up into a, an argument or a disagreement that kind of labels you a certain way or you label them a certain way. And it's just, to me, never felt more divided. And you know, the truth is, we all know we're not going to ever agree with anybody 100%, but it seems like it's hard to disagree with somebody 10% nowadays. And I think this is such a key part of how we learn to love other people. Because loving other people isn't getting them to agree with you 100%, right? Getting other people to agree with you, um, that doesn't even work in marriage. Now can I get an amen? <laughs> and it definitely doesn't work as being a parent, right? Those are things that you, you don't have to agree 100% with somebody, or 90%. To love somebody. Um, so where does our faith meet love? How do we work through this? Um, I don't want to oversimplify this, but I think if we look to Jesus this morning, we're going to see or, or at least become better at being untethered from our safe zone, our little circle of people or the box that we live in and learn how to uh, connect with people outside of that. I'm, I'm really excited to be able to work through this together because um, I think as we learn to untether and reach other people, I think there's just so much that God will do with this in Kessid. And I think as we look to, script, to the scriptures this morning, uh, we'll be looking at the book of Matthew chapter 9, we're going to find something special for Kessid as a church in this scripture too that I thought uh, is, is something special we can, we can break out of today. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. Um, now before I read this, I want to set the table for you a little bit. Jesus had just called a few of his disciples to follow him. And if you recall the story of how Jesus recruited his disciples, it wasn't um, an application process of, um, you know, maybe if you, you, you even do um, follow sports, or, you know, they do a draft, or if, if you're, uh, you're looking for your team to pick the best player, right? Um, well, when it comes to the way Jesus picked people, it seemed a little random at best, right? I mean, he would just like, he was out fishing, he sees Peter and James and John, and he's like, hey guys, why don't you come follow me and be my disciples? You know, these simple fishermen. Now, to us, that may, doesn't make a big difference, but in the Jewish culture that they were growing up in and a part of, they had probably been rejected for the uh, learning to follow Jesus and, and teach the Bible and the religious crowd. Um, and they become fishermen kind of secondary because they really weren't maybe what it took to be um, um, somebody in the religious world. And here Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'll take you. Now, the thing that we need to understand that Jesus, when he 
did that, and when he does that, it's because he knows our heart. <laughs> and God looks at the inward side, and, and people look at the outward side. And God was looking at their heart, and he knew them. And so um, at this point, it's a small community, and things were happening. Uh, Jesus was doing a lot of miracles, and things were happening in that community. And um, if you recall the story shortly before this calling of Matthew, um, was the case where Jesus was um, um, in this room, and this guy, um, his friends wanted to get him in there, and he was paralyzed, and the room was crowded, and Jesus was teaching and healing and doing some amazing things, and so they cut a hole in the roof, and while Jesus is talking, they lowered him down onto the platform and said, hey, here, I'm here, you know? And uh, it was an amazing story of faith, faith in his friends, faith in the, the man who led his friends lower him down into the, to the, to the uh, room. And then this beautiful picture of how Jesus just stopped right there. He went uh, to where this man was and he, and he said, your sins are forgiven, be healed, rise up and walk. And like that, the guy was healed. What's maybe more interesting is um, the, some of the religious people criticized Jesus because of that. They, they couldn't believe. They said, how do you think you have the right to forgive this man's sins? And I think Jesus kind of laughed as he said, well, wait a minute, what, what do you think is more difficult, to say your sins are forgiven or to actually heal this man and let him walk who hadn't walked before? You see, the religious people wanted to make sure that everything was done the way that they did it. They wanted to go through this, this certain structure and path, and they didn't want anybody taking a shortcut. And so when Jesus said, you're forgiven, your sins are forgiven, they were given, he was giving this guy a shortcut, and they wanted him to go through all the hoops that they had gone through and to earn his forgiveness. And Jesus was just giving it out from the graciousness of his heart. Um, so when we get to Matthew, um, the, the calling of Matthew, verse 9, it says, Passing along, Jesus saw a man at work collecting taxes. Now, to you and I, that doesn't mean a lot. I mean, it's interesting to know Matthew was a tax collector. But in that culture, it was, it was very significant. It says his name was Matthew. Jesus said, come along with me. And Matthew stood up, gave up all that he had, and followed Jesus. Just like that. Now, again, I, I want you to recall that Jesus didn't just, like, randomly pick some guy he didn't know his heart. He knew his heart because he's God. And, and, and Matthew, uh, it wasn't like the first time he had ever heard of Jesus. I'm sure he had seen what was going on, but I think it was amazing to him and to others that Jesus chose Matthew to be one of his disciples. The miracle wasn't that Matthew followed Jesus. The miracle was that Jesus called Matthew because he looked at his heart and said, this is who I want on my team. This is my dream team. These just simple fishermen and this tax collector that nobody likes. Now, don't lose that. I don't think we should ever get to the place in our life where we begin to think how lucky God is to have us. We think that somehow he, he was lucky to choose us. The miracle always is God in his amazing power and knowledge and wisdom wants us. He loves us. He chooses us. He chose you. Today he chooses you. And he's glad for that. He doesn't regret it. He's not concerned with what you've done in the past. He's not concerned about what you'll do in the future or what you can bring to his kingdom. He's concerned about you because he chooses you. Now, Matthew, it says, was a tax collector, and though he got up and left all that he had, um, understanding that culture and how the tax collectors were the lowest of the low. 
I want to read what one writer said because I think it puts it into context a little bit better than I could. It says, there's no one hated by a nation quite as much as an enemy collaborator. The tax collectors in Israel at the time of Christ were the leeches that sucked the financial blood out of the hardworking laborers of Israeli society and transferred it into the coffers of the occupying Roman Empire, taking as much as they could for themselves. The tax collector made a sizable living, but part of his pay was the derision, disgust, and isolation of his community. In rigid defiance, he plodded through the condemning faces, the whispers, the threats, and rage, multiplying his wealth and the emptiness of his soul. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty clear description of what people thought of tax collectors in that time. They would have been the ones that were, were literally making their lives miserable, and people just had no regard for them. So for Jesus to have recruited not just these plain, simple fishermen as his first recruits, but now he takes it to another level, and he chooses this tax collector, the worst of the worst, the most despised of society, um, to come and follow him. Look at verse 10, because Jesus wasn't done with that. Because he doesn't just put people on his team. Jesus enters into a relationship into our lives. And here in verse 10 and 11, it says, Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. And when the Pharisees, those are the religious people, saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit. And they lit into Jesus' followers. And they said, what kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with these crooks and riffraff? <laughs> The, the religious people were disgusted, not just that Jesus chose Matthew, but now he took it to another level, and he was entering into his life. And so the get-together that Matthew had, because he was so excited about this new relationship with Jesus, that he invited all of his other friends, who, since he didn't have many friends, they were all tax collectors and outsiders. And Jesus entered into life with them. The religious people stood on the outside watching what was happening on the inside, and they criticized it. They couldn't understand why he would do that. And I think it's really easy for us to sit on the outside and criticize what's going on on the inside. I don't want to be caught outside if Jesus is on the inside. I want to be in there with him. And I think that's the, 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 the part that God is helping us to learn together, hopefully, um, this morning I'm reading this message from the paraphrase, uh, a paraphr a paraphrase of the message uh, because um, all the other versions, I'm not criticizing, they're actually good, they're accurate, um, but they use the word sinner a lot throughout that. So why are you with sinners? And everything was classifying people as a sinners because the religious people, that's what they did. They labeled everybody as sinners. It was just easy to say, you're just a sinner, they're bad, and somehow creates an us versus them mentality. And I think that's one of the tragedies of church world is sometimes we create an us and them mentality where we're here and it's us and it's all about us and, and we all begin to go to the same church, we begin to dress the same way, talk the same way, we kind of learn a new language, Christianese, right? And we speak the same language and it's us versus them. And we look at people outside of our world who think different, act different, talk different, and we begin to label them, if you will, as sinners or something that makes us look better and them look worse. But Jesus blows that paradigm up. He's not interested in it. He, he's saying, look, I'm not only going to bring them into my life, I'm going to enter into their lives. 
and then walk back into their lives with them and, and change them and, and grow them into what I have for them. Uh, earlier, Jesus had called Peter, James, and John, and they climbed into their boats, and Jesus climbed into the boat with them. And I think that's the beautiful thing when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, he climbs into the boat with you. He's not just saying, hey, come to our church and we'll fix you and change you. That's not what God's about. He wants to enter into your life and walk through this life with you, step by step through this journey. And as we learn to do that, it gives us unlimited potential in bringing other people into this same walk with us. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had this crazy thought that it was a good idea to take our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Olive, to Las Vegas with us. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's easy to laugh at now, but we, my, my wife was there for a business trip, and she said, hey, next week I have to come back. They've given us this beautiful hotel room. Everything's free. Why don't you and Olive come down? It's 97 degrees. I'm like, hello. <laughs> you had me at 97. Um, there's a great swimming pool. You'll have a great time. Olive will enjoy it. And I thought she was right. When we got there, I realized that Olive loves air conditioning more than she does 97-degree hot weather, and it's really loud there. Everything that's going on is big and loud. I mean, from our hotel room window, we could see the uh, Bellagio fountains, and it's really cool if you've never seen that. Uh, but in person, it's even better because you get the music and all of the vibe, and Olive was freaking out, like, let's get out of here, Dad. I'm like, oh, okay, bummer, you know? <laughs> and so I'm pushing her in her stroller, and... So on most of the corners down the strip that I was walking my two-and-a-half-year-old down were these showgirls standing on the corner, dressed in their head thing. No, that's all. That was about it. I mean, seriously. <laughs> and I'm walking my two-and-a-half-year-old down past them, and they're really nice. They're like, hi. And Olive hasn't learned to just say hi and look the other way yet, right? So what she did was like, what? And she's like... Hey, girls. I'm like, no, 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 no. Back look, this way, Olive. Look forward or look towards the cars. Look away, you know? And as I'm walking away, Olive is like rubberneck, just looking backwards. And they're like, hi, come over here and take a picture with us. I'm like, no, move it, Olive, you know? I could just imagine, right? When my wife gets back from her meeting and says, well, what did you guys do today? And Olive's like, we took a picture with daddy. And I'm like, no, I deleted it. <laughs> It was just that uncomfortable moment. I don't know where boundaries are for you. I just knew that was not mine right there, the time to win them to Jesus or invite them to Kesed Church. Um, so what Vegas happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But <laughs> so anyways, I don't know where you're at. And, and honestly, it can be a challenge on defining boundaries on who God wants you to reach and how far out of your box you need to go to become a part of what Danny challenged us to do. It can be uncomfortable, but I think it's so critical, it's so necessary to not just define ourselves as us and them, to become a part of other people's lives, to, to not just dig in and say, well, they can come here if they act like me, but to step in and become a part of other people's lives outside of our world. You know what, as, as they kept, they, the religious people said, you those are sinners and they're bad and you're with them. Jesus said, yes, I am. But you know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say hate the sin and love the sinner. He never did. It's not in the Bible. I know it's a common used phrase, especially in religious world, but nowhere in the Bible is that in there. Matter of fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, he would have been much closer to saying love the sinner, love the sinner. <laughs> 
That's what he said. Just love at all costs. Love. To Jesus, there's no other option. Jesus wasn't hung up with their sins or our sins, for that matter, or the actions of people who didn't know him. That doesn't surprise him. That doesn't scare him away. He was too connected to be too connected with people to be distracted by their lifestyles being different than his or his other disciples. Look at verse 12. Here's Jesus' response. He says, Jesus, overhearing the religious people criticize him, shot back. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Isn't that great? <laughs> a great line from Jesus. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Do you think that applies today? You know, it's interesting. Could you imagine if you went down to Peace Health Hospital or Legacy Hospital and you're really sick and you come into the emergency room and, and you're going in there to be treated and they're like, whoa, are you sick? And you're like, yeah, that's why I'm here. Like, oh, sorry, we don't allow sick people anymore. No, this is a hospital and we don't want you coming in here and being contagious. We have employees, doctors, nurses, and we don't want them sick. We don't want other patients. So once you get over your sickness, come on back and have some coffee. Let's hang out, right? That's ludicrous. But don't you think that's kind of the mentality of what Jesus is talking about here, but also what the church can become like? Where it's like, we don't want sick people coming in here until they get better. One author said, the church has many ancient and contemporary metaphors. One is, it should be a hospital for sinners. Another is, it's a spiritual pub with grace on tap. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you see, it's outside of our box. Then Jesus says something that we need to chew on. He says, go figure out what the scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Now, I want you to, just like that first quote I gave you, I want you to take this in for a minute. First of all, he gives us a challenge. He says, go figure out what this means. So what you should do is go figure out what this means, okay? Now, since I was teaching this, I knew that I had to figure out how to handle this, and, and so I decided to go figure out what it means. Um, something, though, before we talk about what it means, something very intriguing that, to me that Danny suggested in the very first week of this series was that what if God is not allowing us to move into our new building until we learn some new things that he wants us to learn before we go into a community that we only have one chance to minister to when we get there? What if God, in his wisdom, is saying, no, 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 no. I don't want you to go yet until you're ready. So that you're ready to receive who I have, who I want to reach. The opportunity that we're moving into, towards, is incredible. And I think that if we're ready, it will make all the difference in how effective we are at it. But the problem is, we're used to living in our box. This morning I have these three boxes up here because it's helped me in my emotional health kind of recovery I've been going through the last four years or so, um, working through um, my life and the new things God has for me. For me, a lot of my, my life as a Christian is living in this box here, the white box, which I call the box of order, okay? So I'm the youngest of eight kids. I have six older sisters and one brother, and, and one by one we all came to Christ and were part of this great church that that loved us where we were at. We come from a very dysfunctional, broken family. And so we had no boundaries and no clarity. So when we came to Christ and came to that church, the box of order was something that was amazing for us. It, it allowed us to get involved in something and learn things and not have to figure out what's right and wrong. 
It was a beautiful place. And I think it is for all of us. We need the box of order. Being untethered implies you were once tethered, right? So I think being tethered is, is like the box of order. You, you need that in your life. It gives you a great foundation and growth to start off. But it's a small box. And God never intended us to stay in the box of order. In order to grow past that, we have to untether, right? That's the, the box of disorder. <laughs> Truthfully, nobody wants to be untethered. That's, that's a, kind of a crazy thought. Like, I'm going to float out in space with nothing connecting me to anything else. Why would I do that? Because you can't get from the box of order to reorder until you untether yourself. You have to go from the box of order to the box of disorder in order for God to reorder your life. This is so important, no matter where you're at in this series, whether maybe some of the struggles you've had was the week that Danny talked about the Bible or on prayer or Chris talked about the church. It all requires you to untether, to go from the box of order, the way you understood things and followed things, which is important, but to, dis, uh, to go to disorder, untether, so that God can make it new and put you where he really wants you to be in reorder. Now, I'm a couple years ahead of this, and, and thank God for this process. I'm learning that it's, it's, it's the most difficult step is untethering, going to disorder. It's scary, right? But it's so important because you can't go from one to three. Think of Jesus' life on this earth. Jesus came to this earth, and he created order and, and clarity and gospel and healing and just beautiful things. But it didn't end there, did it? He was crucified. He was, he, he was crucified on a cross. He had to give his life on that cross so that we could experience life and reorder. Jesus went through that same step from order to disorder to reorder. And hopefully we can learn to, in, our, in our walk as God's challenging us with these new steps and these new thoughts as we step outside of what we're used to, that God isn't going to leave you in disorder. But disorder is important in order for you to reorder what God has for you. And when it comes to this idea of how far do you go, what are your boundaries on loving people and reaching people and being a part of what God's doing, I hope you can just trust God in the process. Remember the scripture I used at the beginning? God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. And he's not going to hang you out to dry today or tomorrow. He's going to see you through it from disorder, untethering, to retethering, and to growing to what he wants for you. So this question he had, let's look at this scripture. He says, go figure out what this means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Now, if you look to what he's talking about, he's quoting the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, these people knew Hosea very well. They were they're, uh, Jewish people and this was a Jewish writing. And so when Jesus quoted that, that verse meant something to them immediately. And I hope it will to you. As I dug into this and took him up on the challenge to figure out what it means, I was amazed to find out the word mercy means much more um, now that I'm a part of Kesed Church. Because as a general meeting, the scripture means that God isn't interested in our religious practices more than he is in us living out our faith in love. Now, if you knew the book of Hosea, you know that Hosea was a prophet and he was married to a prostitute. God called him to marry a prostitute. And continually she would go back to her 
her life as a prostitute. And Hosea kept bringing her back and loving her and accepting her and restoring her. And that's the picture that God has towards us, that no matter how many times we've gone out and gone against him, he doesn't change his love for us. He still shows us mercy, new mercies every day. And in this beautiful picture, mercy, if you look at the Hebrew meaning of the word mercy, it's a word called kesed. And if you learn the story of Kesed Church, it's part of how God created the church that we call Kesed. Kesed is a word that is not easily translated into English, but it means devoted love, loyalty, strength, kindness, and compassion. I loved Chris's explanation of compassion at the beginning of the service this morning. That's what kesed means. If you were to read the scripture, Jesus would say, I desire kesed mercy, not religious practices. I want you to learn kesed mercy, kesed love, kesed forgiveness, kesed um, kindness, compassion. That's the call that God has for us, for all people. But for us at kesed church, it doesn't get any more real than that, does it? In telling the Pharisees this, Jesus reminds them that God's compassion extends to those who are farthest from him. In in, in viewing it, the life with Matthew and these other reprobates and outsiders and tax collectors or sinners, if you even want to use that word, Jesus entered into life with them. He didn't call them out and say, come over here and we'll clean you up. He said, I'm going to go enter into their life and love them where they're at. And he did. And when you look at that in his life, it was so clear. And I think that when we look at how far do we go, what's our boundaries? Where does our faith meet love? It's when we enter into the people in our life that God calls us to and bring them a part of God's kingdom. So in light of this challenge Jesus gave to figure out what this means, I'm going to ask you two questions. Number one... What boundaries keep you from living Kesed mercy towards the people God wants you to live towards? And number two, how can your love grow to include outsiders, not just insiders? How can your love grow? How can you move from the box of order (laughs) to untether to this box of disorder of not necessarily comfortable, it's outside of your, your zone, and reach the people God wants you to reach? While you're considering that, I'm going to read a parable of a lighthouse. I'm going to close with this, and maybe if you want, you can just close your eyes and listen. I'm just going to read it out loud. But I I hope it gives you a perspective of what God would have us to learn and why he wants us to learn it. It says, On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut. There was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no one thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station, and they gave of their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Now some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those that were being saved from the sea. 
So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for all of its members in the community. And they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it with sort of a club atmosphere. Few of the members were now interested in going out to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work for them. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most people were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally themselves. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners and spoke a strange language. And the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately met, and they had a shower installed outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the membership because some of the club members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as really being very unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life patterns of what they were trying to do. But some members insisted the life-saving station was their primary purpose, and they pointed out they were still called a life-saving station. They were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could go begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They, involved, they evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded, at least on the sign. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, only now most of the passengers drown. Can we pray? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenge that you have for us to untether. This morning, as we consider letting loose from maybe the box of order, maybe it's not just this week's talk, but the whole series that's been a challenge to us, Lord, that we realize today that by allowing you to untether us that you're going to not leave us out there but you're going to you're not going to forsake us but you're going to be with us you're going to grow us you're going to help us to go from being untethered to to reordered into a new life god when it comes to our hearts and the challenge that danny gave us on week two of how to reach out to people and to love the people that you have for us god i pray this morning you give us um just eyes to see beyond what we've seen give us the freedom to untether from the people that we're used to and consider the people you called us to. Lord, allow us to, to show love to people we've never considered in a way that we've never experienced. In Jesus' name, amen.